This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of August the 7th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. You've probably heard that our planet just experienced the hottest month ever recorded in human history, thanks to a combination of the natural climate pattern El Nino and human-caused climate change. In central Indiana, we didn't experience 31 straight days of 110-degree weather like they did in Phoenix, Arizona. But we know that average temperatures in Indiana slowly have been climbing over the last century, and that scientists expect that trend to accelerate in coming decades. In 2018, a raft of Purdue University researchers published a report on the impact of climate change on Indiana agriculture and looked at the ways increasing temperatures and rainfall could affect the growing season for crops, the types of crops that could be planted, the health of farm animals, and the prevalence of weeds, pests, and disease. Now, even for Hoosiers who spend most of their time in air-conditioned environments, the future of agriculture is a very big deal. About 15 million acres of land in Indiana are devoted to farm operations, which is about two-thirds of the entire state. In 2022, corn and soybeans accounted for 5.2 million and 5.8 million of Indiana's agricultural acres, respectively. Indiana typically is in the top five states nationally in corn and soybean production. The state also ranks high for production of hogs, chickens, turkeys, ducks, and eggs. There are 55,000 farms throughout Indiana. Agriculture contributes about $35 billion to Indiana's economy every year and accounts for nearly 5% of the state's gross domestic product. For this week's edition of the IBJ podcast, I wanted to get a sense of how climate change is playing out on the ground in Indiana fields. For guests, we have three members of Purdue's agronomy faculty, including an expert in soybeans and an expert in corn. They're going to tell us how much more difficult it is for the tens of thousands of farmers in Indiana to make the right decisions at the right time, but that the future is still bright for farmers who have the tools and willingness to adapt to quickening change. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Laura Bowling, professor of agronomy and director of the Interdisciplinary Undergraduate Program in Natural Resources and Environmental Science at Purdue University. Thanks for making the time today, Laura. Pleasure to be here. Also from Purdue, we have Sean Castile, associate professor of agronomy and extension soybean specialist. Sean, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Sean is out in the field today, so please share any observations you have while you're out there. And we have <laughs> it's beautiful weather. <laughs> and we have Daniel Quinn, assistant professor of agronomy and extension corn specialist. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Brett. So I will start with the easiest of questions. How are things going this summer for Indiana farmers? Can can we get the report? I mean, obviously, Sean is out on the field, but uh, Dan, I'm sure you can chime in as well. Yeah, I can. I can go ahead. You know, I think things have really turned around for Indiana farmers. You look at you know the way that. The season has gone. We're, you know, planting progress. You know, we had really good planting conditions. Farmers got planted very timely this year, but then things turned very dry. So we got some very, you know, hot weather, but very dry weather uh, late May and through June. And 
that kind of raised some of the concerns of the farmers. But I think with earlier planting and, you know, getting the crops in and established, we've finally been catching quite a bit of the moisture and the rainfall uh, that we need for the state. So um, crop conditions, you know, on the corn side has really turned around and a lot of things look very, very good around the state and, and have really kind of dramatically improved around the state. So I think, you know, a lot of farmers are, are pretty happy at, at where things stand at this point in time. Okay. And Sean, how are things going? Yeah, we're a similar uh, fashion in terms of one of the fastest planting progresses we've had on record with soybeans. And uh, for that, that record, it's either been a drought year or our state record yields. And so we've got three years that we've had droughts with this kind of a pace, and we've got three years that were uh, the record yields. And so the month of June was definitely a a drought status for us as we get into abnormally dry to D1 status. And that, that was pretty much the whole month of June. And then but it was just enough moisture there for the early planted crop to get established, have good root systems. And then water's been coming back for the most part through the month of June, mostly across the state. And the crop looks tremendous. It really does on the soybean front. We went down from good to excellent ratings, maybe as low as 40% in June. And we're upwards of mid 60%, 65% good to excellent ratings on a weekly basis from the USDA here in Indiana. And it looks really good and looks promising. You guys both mentioned uh, early planting. Is that a, a newish uh, strategy for farmers? I'll let you know, Sean what, speak to that because um, yeah, kind of seen a big shift with soy. It's really mostly on the soybean front. So I'll let Sean speak to that. Yeah, I thought he was going to say that because I'm an elder statesman. I got a few more years on him, but I'll go ahead and take it to that. We've had the shift and that's the route we're going to go. Uh, so within the soybean world and really the corn belt of, of the U.S., Probably 10, 15 years ago, uh, you're going to get corn planted and then soybeans get planted whenever you can get to it. And and the shift has really occurred in the last uh, five years or so. We, we used to be maybe about a 10 to 14 day delay when we compared the corn planting progress and then soybeans would follow about 10 to 14 days later. It'd start up and slow and then fast. And But it was that, that delay. And then the last uh, three to four years, we're about within three to four days of the, the corn planting progress. And then the, this year and last year, we're within a day. So basically corn and soybean planting is at the same pace. A lot of people in of old 10, 15 years and many decades prior to that is like, oh, soybeans can't handle it. Uh, they're just going to be that rotation crop. And people have learned over the years that timely planting soybeans actually yields very well. They respond ex- extremely well to that. And so that's what we've seen a shift with our growers and and what we've been telling them over the last uh, 10 years or so. Does that have anything to do with the weather getting hotter? Yeah, I, I certainly think that there's a number of factors that come into this. I, I think that we've got smaller windows of time for planting progress on both crops. We've got larger equipment and we're able to, to push through very quickly. And so these smaller windows, sometimes we're catching, oh, uh, I'll go a late March to early April that the weather looks, looks fabulous, 85 degree weather, and then it turns off cold again. And so... Uh, we're catching these smaller windows. They're earlier, uh, some coming that April to May. And so whenever we, we have those opportunities and we've got data that back up good yield potential with timely planting, I think the growers are seeing that. And then we do have this shift, what appears to be a shift. I'll just put it as agronomist uh, hat that I wear that I think we've got a few little windows. They're not as long stretch days upon days to plant. We've got these just I almost call it a couple hours to plant instead of a couple of days and we get it out quickly. 
and then we get a, a crop established and we get the benefit of that. We don't have the springs like we used to. At least I grew up in the Midwest and felt like we always had time to get things out. And right now I just I feel like we have just these bursts of time instead of days on end. Yeah, you know, just to comment on that, probably some of the biggest challenges we have in, in terms of, you know, climate aspects and the spring planting is just the variability. You know, it's not so much, you know, things are getting warmer and, and that's something we pay attention to, but it's just the sheer variability and, and rainfall and temperature swings. And, you know, there's kind of a, you know, physiological aspects from the soybeans that they see a little bit, you know, better yield responses to earlier planted earlier planting dates, but, you know, soybeans and, and Sean will, you know, give me a hard time on this as well as that, you know, soybeans have the ability to kind of adapt and compensate a little bit better than corn does. You know, corn, we don't, you know, rely as much on earlier planting dates. It can, you know, we can kind of have a larger window for getting that corn planted. And and so it, it just doesn't adapt and, and compensate as well. Uh, maybe it doesn't really like some of the <laughs> variable or cooler soil temperatures as much as soybeans. So um, I think we've kind of seen that shift uh, where a lot of farmers have really moved towards, okay, I can put my soybeans in earlier. They can maybe handle it a little bit better. Um, they can compensate, they can adapt, they can branch. You know, and Then I can maybe wait till the conditions, you know, kind of, um, improve a little bit. The the soil temperature is a little bit warmer. You know, on the corn side, we really rely on getting that you know the crop in, but getting it up timely. You know, getting it out of the ground quickly, getting it out of the ground uniformly, um, and that requires higher soil temperatures, right? And and more you know less variable conditions. Um, so the biggest challenge really that we see is is the, the variability of the weather. And, and Sean had mentioned it too. It's not, you know, we don't have two straight weeks of, of field work to plant in the spring. It's two hours here and three hours there. And then, you know, and it's year out, year in and year out is different. And, and that's what is really, really challenging um, from the crop standpoint, getting it planted. So if we, we open up our perspective and just look at the last hundred years, what is the overall trend in temperature and rainfall, let's say over the last century in Indiana, and in particular during the growing season? Overall trend is warmer and wetter. So over the last hundred years, our annual precipitation has increased by about four to five inches overall. And warmer at all times, that's going to be most noticeable in the shoulder seasons, right? We're going to notice that change in temperature more in the spring and the fall, and then in the middle of the summer when we're experiencing record high heats. So the precipitation is not evenly distributed around the year. So most of that precipitation increase is happening in the winter and spring, and the temperature increase is happening year round. How significant is the temperature increase to this point? So um, annual temperature has increased uh, a little over one degree Fahrenheit over the last hundred years. And so the annual precipitation has increased several inches. Yes. Uh, And both of those trends are expected to continue. Right. And yeah, and that's maybe the bigger question. My impression just from from reading some literature is that the increase in, at least in temperature, is expected to really accelerate uh, over the next several decades. Is that right? That is correct. And it's for a variety of reasons why there's sort of the, this exponential increase in the rate of temperature. Some of it is the characteristics of the Midwest. Um, sometimes people talk about this warming hole in the, in the corn belt of the U.S. that um, for a variety of reasons, 
we have not experienced as much of a temperature increase historically as some other parts of the country. But then it's also just some of the positive feedbacks in the climate system that this temperature increase is projected to go up dramatically. It won't remain a, a linear trend. Yeah. So we're not seeing the, the kind of temperatures are seen in Phoenix, Arizona right now, where they get 30 consecutive days of 105. Yeah. But but over but over time, uh, there, there will be a fairly significant increase in temperature in the next several decades. Definitely. And that's um, heat stress are some of the areas of concern. And, you know, when we did our climate impacts assessment, one of the things we were looking at were impacts to animal agriculture and that the number of consecutive days of heat stress are are one of the areas of concern because we get extreme temperatures now. And so it's not that our extremes themselves are necessarily going up that much, but we're looking at more consecutive days of heat stress. And so that means whether, whether you're a plant or an animal, it's harder to recover from those hits if you've got these extended periods at uncomfortable temperatures. And to this point, has the, has the effect been pronounced at all? Or how would you measure the, the effect on, uh, on livestock and on growing? In terms of the animal agriculture, I think it's just increasing recognition that there have to be cooling opportunities from the animals and that this is an area of preparation that's needed moving into the future so that there are investments made to provide cooling opportunities. I'm sure that Dan and Sean are going to chime in on um, the crop impacts. I've heard them both say that that they're pretty forgiving, that, that they can recover from those extreme heats. I know one of the things that we investigated at the time that we did the report was the impact of elevated nighttime temperatures during flowering that there does seem to be increasing evidence that that can hurt yields. So it's not an an acute, immediate reaction, but it's something that we're seeing more statistically as we look over the last decade of or two of yield. Yeah, and I I can speak to the corn side. Corn, for the most part, is is pretty forgiving. You know, it's a it's a tropical grass, right? And it can tolerate very high temperatures, um, even in, in shorter windows. I think. You know, the, the challenge that we see a lot of times when you think about heat stress is it's often, you know, kind of hand in hand with moisture stress. So if you have higher heat levels, you get, you know, higher, you know, surface leaf temperatures, you get higher soil temperatures that and result in higher transpiration rates, higher evaporation rates, and just an exacerbated level of, you know, soil moisture depletion. So really from the corn side, we're a lot more concerned on soil moisture um, issues, you know, drought conditions, and then I would say heat stress. Um, but, you know, especially during the flowering side, so Laura had mentioned, you know, pollination in corn, you know, corn and soybean differ dramatically in, in their reproductive stages and their in their flowering stages. You know, corn, you know, in the state of Indiana, most of the flowering is done kind of mid to late July. So even at this point in time, if you look around the state, a lot of you'll see the tassels um, and the pollen flying from the corn and, and corn, you know, pollinates for a very short window. It's only about seven to 10 days. And, and it's the point in time where that crop is, you know, using the most amount of water that it's going to use. It's going to have, you know, high levels of biomass. It's also when it's really determining, you know, how many kernels I'm going to have at that point in time, which is, you know, a really high correlation to grain yield and, and really, really important for that crop. So something like you know, in the Midwest, we typically don't worry about, you know, really high temperatures that actually desiccate pollen. But if 
we get to that point where the mornings, you know, are a lot warmer, then we may be a little bit more concerned about that. And, and Laura had mentioned too, you know, nighttime temperatures as well. So nighttime temperatures, you know, you think about respiration rates of the crop, you know, that crop repairing itself. Um, it's just working a lot harder at, and, and spending a lot more energy at night when those temperatures are higher. So um, that is something that we, we will watch. And we typically see, you know, much higher statewide yield averages um, and better grain fill and better kernel size and, and overall yields when we have lower nighttime temperatures and really at pollination and through, you know, the month of August and September and that grain fill all the way until harvest. So that's where a lot of that higher temperatures can factor in, you know, just higher evaporation, higher transpiration rates, you know, a little bit more moisture stress on those plants. And then also, you know, causing that plant to kind of work a lot harder, spend a lot more energy, you know, not have that kind of long drawn out grain fill where we can get a lot better yields um, as well. So that's that's something all to be mindful of as these temperatures do increase. To the present, at least, has there been really any appreciable effect on yields that you could isolate? It's so hard to isolate specifically heat stress impacts because they're often married with soil moisture um, impacts. So from the corn side, at least from my perspective, corn is is very tolerant of, of heat stress, especially for shorter windows. It can tolerate above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, we typically don't worry about you know, pollination issues with heat stress because corn will pollinate in the morning a lot more so. So it kind of compensates for that. Um, it's just more so that when we have higher temperatures, we get higher surface leaf barrier temperatures, higher soil temperatures, higher evaporation and transpiration rates that then drive, you know, a lot quicker soil moisture deficits. And when you have, you know, those drought conditions, soil moisture deficits, especially in those critical stages like flowering, corn is very, very susceptible to stress at that point in time. Even, you know, consecutive cloudy days can cause yield impacts. Uh, for corn during that period. Um, so typically when you have higher temperature sh- stress and we're not getting that rainfall, it can kind of accelerate some of those drop conditions. Um, so that is really kind of concerning uh, when it happens, but it really depends on exactly when it happens uh, during the growth state and growing point or the growing cycle of that crop. And, you know, that pollination period is is the most critical. Sean, does it look like the soybeans? I think you mentioned before that there may even be a little bit more hardy in terms of dealing with the heat right and so and in terms of the soybean front so you got corn that has a week or so of pollination soybeans so the, the beans that we grow in the midwest are indeterminate and so they're going to flower over four five six weeks so again this is where they have that ability to be flexible to adapt to the growing season so whether that's heat stress that's drought stress or, or even too much water so I, I think from that standpoint we can adapt uh, I think a big part with this this potential increase in temperature, and I would also talk about more precipitation over the kind of annual basis. I, I think the the big deal is when does it really uh, zero in? And in particular, I think what we've been experiencing from observations observations from the field is that we are having some warmer temperatures and um, later in the season. So that really is to the benefit uh, on the soybean front. Because a lot of times, if you go to August and September, things are starting to cool down. And if those nights get too cold for us, well, at that period, we're talking like 50-degree nights, uh, two or three of those days in a row, those nights in a row, our photosynthetic capacity, our ability to harvest sunlight actually decreases. And so if we actually have warmer nights in that August to September period, 
with adequate soil moisture, uh, good heat units, that's the way of kind of measuring thermal energy and, and what this plant can take up and continue to grow and put in feed weight to those pods and seeds, it, it can be to the benefit of the soybean. So that's where the two would be kind of you know, opposing in many ways that the heat stress uh, at night for, for corn maybe a, could be a little bit more problematic versus the soybeans. We actually might might want that. And then, uh, again, I go back to the, the front of the season. If we're warming earlier, able to get it planted earlier, we've all of a sudden got a little bit more extended season, provided we can plant timely. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast and our discussion with Purdue University agronomists Laura Bowling, Sean Castile, and Daniel Quinn about the effects of our changing climate on Indiana agriculture. As, as the guy who basically knows about as much about farming as, as you can glean from driving past a field, it sounds like Indiana might be pretty well positioned, at least in the near future, uh, to deal with, with you know, changes in climate, changes in the environment, perhaps more so than other parts of the country that are really getting blasted. Am I anywhere near the truth on that? Indiana is in a very good position to continue to be successful, not because we're not experiencing any new stresses or changes, but because farmers are already adapting, as, as Dan and Sean both alluded to. They're living it every day. They might not be coming to us asking for questions about climate change, but they are asking for questions about how can they manage these changing conditions? Are other people seeing the same thing? And so, yes, adapting their management so that they can improve soil health to hold on to soil moisture a little bit longer into the growing season and things like that to to buffer this variability. All right. This is going to be the dumbest question I've asked in the history of the podcast, (laughs) but Let's say I'm, I'm a farmer. So I am not actually, I don't just have a, like a date circle on my calendar. Like I'm going to plant on March the 1st. I'm actually waiting for optimum conditions. And that is going to require me, I mean, to check the weather, to check, I'm sure a million different kinds of resources. And it's finding that window and how quickly that window changes. That is the challenge. No, I 100% you're hitting the nail on the head because you can go to the field and say, yep, it's perfect. Or you can look at the forecast, there's a chance of rain, field conditions may be kind of moderate, and it's like, okay, is this the best I'm going to do now, or am I going to be stuck for three weeks before I can plant again? Uh, so most definitely, they're out there checking the fields. They're looking at apps that are doing a, a fair job of uh, tillable acres and conditions and soil moisture sensors that are already out there looking at soil temperature. Yeah, that's a part of their their daily life this, this spring. And that's a point where... Um, Indiana is actually a little bit more difficult, a little bit more of a challenge than some of our our states to the West in that we often hear that our growing season is getting longer because of increasing temperatures. And so we can plant earlier, we can harvest later. 
It's not necessarily true in Indiana because although it is warming earlier and so soil temperatures might be warm enough to plant earlier, the moisture, because we have so much poorly drained agriculture, we can't necessarily plant earlier because of excess moisture. And that's that's what's controlling a lot of this shorter window that we used to have. It, what, I mean, you mentioned poorly drained agriculture. What is that? Because of our glacial history, a lot of the soils that are very productive agricultural land in the state hold water very well, which can be useful, but it's not useful in the spring when we have our wettest conditions. And so that's why so much of our agricultural land relies on subsurface drainage to remove excess water. So we're often limited by having the soil dry enough to plant, not having it warm enough to plant. So if, if we have a wetter winter, there's going to be a lot of water content on the ground and it's not conducive to planting. And, we're, yeah. and we are having wetter winters. Yeah, I think there's there's a balance to that. You know, we want some level of, of snowfall and moisture, and especially if we have a drier fall, right? We want to be able to recharge those soils. Um, and have adequate moisture going into the growing season. You don't want to start at a deficit into that growing season, but it's also that challenge in the spring. And, you know, as Laura and Sean alluded to, <laughs> the farmers, they're, they're using soil moisture sensors. They're testing the soil temperature constantly. They're watching every single one of their fields. They're using their weather apps and their data. And, and you know, they're calling, you know, we get phone calls all the time. Hey, should we plant yet? Should we not plant yet? Should we plant yet? You know, they're watching all aspects of that because it's so critical for them. And, and it's also so challenging because they don't have, you know, it's not, you know, the calendar turns to May and then it's, you know, 75 and sunny for three weeks and they can get their planning done. They can get it done when they want. You know, a lot of these farmers, you know, might cover two, three, 4,000 acres and they have to get it done in, you know, four days, right. Or five days. And, and it's just really, really challenging. So they're they're constantly watching that and, and understanding, you know, getting it in timely, but also getting it into the right soil conditions as well. Um, so there's that that aspect to it as well. This is awesome. I, I come from a farming family, right? My family had a far, like a 200 acre farm in Howard County for 150 years, which we sold probably 30 years ago. I, I just know nothing about farming. And I always just sort of assumed like you just picked the day and you planted but the farmers are all actually like talking to each other or talking to people counties away, talking to people at Purdue. They're all trying to figure this out. And like, you might look across the street and be like, oh, that guy's planning. Maybe I need to get out there. I mean, this, this sounds so variable and, and so uh, stressful. And it could be that because their neighbor is able to plant, that still doesn't mean they're not able to plant, right? Because yeah. soils differ. They have different management. Some some use tillage, some don't use tillage, some have residue, some don't, you know, so there's that that constant education and understanding just to make that decision whether or not to plant, it can be very challenging. So livestock we are at an increased risk of heat stress. How does that affect the animals? Well, I can use layman's terms, right? Because none of us <laughs> yeah. are actually animal specialists. I think the biggest thing is just that they eat less. Mm. Oh, okay. That would be a problem. I mean, you can have, um, I mean, you can have heat stress just as humans can experience heat stress, right? So you can have some, some acute direct responses to extremely high heat, but then the prolonged exposure to elevated temperatures can have the impact of just less weight gain. They're not going to eat as much and not processing those proteins as efficiently. You mentioned uh, foraging. How is foraging affected in all this? So the, the forage, so the, the crop that's going to be used to, to feed the animals, 
whether we're talking about alfalfa or other crops that are grown specifically for animal feed, they're also going to be affected by high heat conditions. And one of the, the major concerns that came out in our analysis was just the, the changing in, change in protein content of some of those. So one, you can just have a decrease in yield because of heat stress, similar to other crops. But then the balance of nutrition in the alfalfa can also be affected by high temperatures so that the animals are eating just as much. They're feeling full, but they're not getting as much protein content. How do the, the warmer temperatures and, uh, and potentially the greater amount of precipitation, how does that affect the things that pressure farmers like weeds and pests? Like I know, for example, the ticks are a lot more active because they're not as likely to freeze to death in the winter. Are the, the pests that are plaguing farmers, are they similarly affected? Are they more of a problem? Yeah, I'll, I'll speak, you know, the answer is yes, um, definitely. Um, as you know, something you know, mentioned, weeds, uh, disease is a big one. We think about a lot of diseases, you know, crop diseases thrive in warmer temperatures, more humid temperatures or humid conditions, higher levels of precipitation, you know, more moist conditions can help drive those diseases. Um, we see that, you know, one of the biggest diseases that, that farmers deal with in corn right now is tar spot, right? Tar spot really wasn't prevalent in the state um, until about 2016. And it kind of, you know, really blew up around the state in 2018. And now it's, you know, on every farmer in line around the state. That's that's very, very recent. Um, and that disease uh, really is is driven by, you know, high, you know, humidity conditions, um, it's driven by continued leaf wetness on that crop. Um, so if you have those that environment where it's a little bit warmer, a little bit more moist, a little bit more humid, I mean, that's that's really, really kind of a driver for some of these diseases. And not only just something like tar spot, but a lot of the other um, crop diseases, both in corn and soybeans, can be really kind of exacerbated with these changes in climate. And, you know, weeds is another one as well, right? You know, and weeds... Certain weeds can thrive in these, you know, warmer conditions. They can emerge a lot quicker as well. Um, can be a little bit more challenging to kind of control. Um, but you know, one of the main ones that come to my mind is, is diseases um, because they thrive in those more moist and humid and hot conditions uh, that we can see when they with these climate change. What kind of diseases? Tar- yeah, is it like a fungal disease? It's a fungal disease. Yep. Yeah, it's a fungal disease. So the tar the the name kind of speaks for itself, right? It, it, it's the foliar fungal disease. It looks like if I took tar and put it on a brush and splattered it on the, on the corn, but it has the ability to almost kind of overtake corn fields um, and, and really kind of really take over that green leaf tissue, impact photosynthesis. You know, you can see farmers lose 30, 40, 50 bushels per acre. I mean, that's a lot of money. Um, from those fields because of that disease. And that's really a prime example of something that's kind of recently come about. And I know there's some others, even soybean disease, I'll let speak, Sean speak to this too, that are kind of starting to work their way into the state and, and as well. And we're starting to see maybe some things come up from the South as well. So um, diseases are, are definitely on, on the top of the mind when it comes to changes in, in temperature and weather conditions. I know farming is, has never been easy, but it sounds like, like if I wanted to just get into farming today, what I need to be ready to do is deal with pretty significant change 
uh, from year to year to year to year that uh, that you are. I mean, you just need to be a lot more active in monitoring what's happening and and to adjust to these new challenges. It's, it's such a challenge from the farmers, because if you talk to every farmer, they'll tell you every single year is different. That's that's because that's the truth. Every year is variable. Every spring is different. Every you know pest pressure year is different. Um, it's just so challenging. But I would say farmers are are so adaptable and, and smart in the ways they use their technology that they have. They can do everything they can to control what they can control, um, which is you know constantly you know using the level of technology that they have, right? The, the equipment that they have, the sensors that they have. The I mean, you sit in a, a a uh, planter and it looks like an airplane cockpit, right? Because they're they're constantly using everything from iPads to their phones to the weather to talking to their agronomists to Purdue Extension to, I mean, they're doing everything they can to control what they can control and, and things keep getting better, right? The genetics and the hybrids and varieties that we use keep getting better and, and the level of being able to tolerate, you know, tolerate a lot of these conditions. So is, is it fair to say that with the, uh... With the increased variability in climate, that farmers are dealing with more changes more often than maybe they did 30, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, I, I think yes. And they'll tell you that, right? Um, they'll tell you that things aren't the same as what they used to be. Um, I think they're dealing with a lot more challenges, but they also have a lot of the resources and the technology um, that they maybe didn't have back then. Um, to adapt and to to manage these challenges as well. But the answer is yes, right? It's, it's any farmer you talk to, they will tell you that things are not the same as what they used to be, especially from an environmental or weather aspect. So 30 years from now in the 53, what's the prognosis for, for corn and soybeans in Indiana? Do we know anything <laughs> about how the yields are going to be, how farming is going to be different? You know, if I was just going to chart out my my next 30 years as a farmer, what do I need to do? What do I need to know? You look at a lot of you know resources that always point to 2050, right? We have to be able to see feed 9 billion people and we're not getting more land and we have this climate change and, you know, doom and gloom, you know, we're not going to make it. Uh, but I do think they underestimate the ability of farmers to adapt and and farmers are so good at what they do because if you look at, you know, yield increases where we're at yield wise and production wise now compared to even, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it's, it's unbelievable. Right. Um, so I think, you know, you look at 30 years from now, it's, I mean, it's kind of scary, you know, just even you think about the technology and, and how much has changed in the last 10 years, right. You think about 30 years from now. Um, I mean, most farmers, they might be, you know, doing a lot of their, their farming from their office chair. Right. I mean, some, right. That's probably going to be harder than others. Um, farmers still love being out in the fields and, and and doing that aspect. But you just think about technology changes over the next 30 years and you think about, you know, genetics changes and management system changes. Um, things will get, I think, more challenging. Um, but I also think you maybe are underestimating some of the ability of those farmers to adapt and, and what things are on the horizon to allow farmers and, and overall food production to adapt uh, to condition changes over the next 30 years. I'm, I'm going to maybe say a couple of things I shouldn't, but I will. 
terms of the next 30 years, thinking more in terms of, of the climate changes, right? We are going to be feeling that potential for heat stress more and some more moisture limitations in the growing season because of increased crop water needs. Sorry, Dan, I think soybeans going to be in pretty good shape, right? And we have the potential, as, as Sean alluded, for some more double cropping systems, even involving soybean and some other rotations. Corn is still going to be going strong in Indiana. There are going to be more challenges with corn. An adaptation I would love to see is more variety in the crops that we produce. I think that's going to be um, a way that farmers can buffer risk a little bit more instead of having um, complete dependence on a two crop rotation that might be challenged in some years. But as both Dan and Sean said, things are constantly changing. Technology improvements in the seed itself, as well as the adaptations that farmers are, are making to, to how they grow things differently. Corn and soybean are both going to be strong in Indiana in 30 years from now. But we need to continue to adapt to make sure that we're managing things as best as we can. My thanks again to Laura Bowling, Sean Castile, and Daniel Quinn. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. First up, Central Indiana has no lack of coffee shops. But out-of-state Java purveyors believe there's an unmet appetite for caffeinated beverages in public spaces. Dave Lindquist reports on the latest wave of coffee shop chains opening stores in the indie area. Also in this week's issue, Susan Orr goes behind the scenes of the debut of Rally, a multi-million dollar business conference in Indianapolis intended to bring together entrepreneurs and investors from around the country. And Mickey Shuey sheds light on plans to turn the now-vacant John Marshall High School into a neighborhood services hub on the Far East Side. And again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. I will say, it is easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And here's a new development. We have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And that works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.